Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show, the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions. And now, the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio. Here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. It's always wonderful to be here. We're in our 20th or 21st year now. And so um, really want to note that and just say this is a wonderful network. So many of the hosts are really talking about how can we improve the quality of our lives in some way. And that's what this show is all about as well. And I'm very happy today have a very interesting interview and a very interesting guest. We're talking to a former prison doctor who went through some very harrowing experiences and came out of them in a way with hope and courage. My guest is Dr. Karen Gedney. She's an MD and she's an internal medicine specialist. In 1987, she was the first woman doctor in Nevada placed in a male medium security prison. Against all odds, she stayed three decades and it turned out to be her calling. Dr. Gedney is recognized in both the medical and correctional fields. She won the Heroes for Humanity Award in Nevada and was noted as one of the best in the business by the American Correctional Association. When she retired from the prison system, she became an activist in the holistic prison reform movement and wrote her memoir, 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor. Today, she advocates for prison reform and inspires individuals and groups to become involved in reforming the prison system. Welcome, Dr. Karen Gedney. Well, thank you, Patricia, for that wonderful introduction. (laughs) Well, it's all true. I look forward to your questions. Well, the first one is, um, I think, you know, even before the first question, which is how did you end up in a male prison, how did you end up, what made you choose you know, being an MD in the prison system. Let's start there. Why did you choose that that up uh, that form, if you will? Well, interestingly, it wasn't that I chose it. I was a scholarship winner, a National Health Corps scholarship winner, one of those poor kids where the federal government financed the medical school, and then in mm-hmm. return, mind you, this right. was way back in Reagan's day. <laughs> I had to work four years in an underserved area. Mm -hmm. And when I signed that contract, actually basically in the late 70s, I had no idea that a prison was an option. I don't think the government even knew it was an option then because the United States didn't look at medical care for inmates as a right until... Uh, I believe it was, let me think, 1976 in a Supreme Court case, Estelle versus Mm. Gamble. You see what I mean? Mm. It was in the 70s that the Supreme Court said, no, inmates have a right to medical care. So I don't even think they even knew about it. But when my time was up, um, I was placed in the prison in Nevada. And one of the reasons was I did my internal medicine residency in uh, University of Nevada, Reno, as a chief resident. So I was like a co-chief resident. They had to put me somewhere. The prisons were under huge lawsuits. The governor at that time had uh, petitioned the federal government that, hey, you're, I have all these lawsuits, but I can't make a doctor work in a prison. And in those days, no doctor <laughs> for, in their right mind would decide to go and work inside a prison because in those days, one, they paid, let's just say maybe a quarter of the salary a normal doctor would make. And plus it was a dangerous environment. There was no peer support. I mean, it was really, you know, a depressing environment in terms of the way it smelled, the way it looked, the way society looked at you, like if you worked at a prison, then obviously something was quite wrong with you or you couldn't cope in the right world. In fact, Nevada had uh, passed legislation that they would accept doctors who had dings in their license, meaning that if you couldn't Mm. work as a doctor in the real world, 
the legislators had written some sort of clause that you could get a doctor who had dings in a prison mm-hmm. because then we won't look. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea when I started mm-hmm. that that was on the books. And when I worked there, um, there were some other doctors that filtered in, and then I found out, like, wait a second, how come this doctor can't write a narcotic order? Right. And I have to write it. And they would say, mm-hmm. oh, that's because he doesn't have a license for narcotics mm-hmm. because he would pressure females for sex, and then he would give mm-hmm. them a narcotic order. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh, my Right, where today, 35 or 30, right, today that wouldn't even, I mean, he would be out. There'd be no, there'd be no option to even work in a prison today. Right, right, right. So so everything's really changed. I mean, that's that's the thing. I I started when they were just starting to look at medicine in prison as a thing. You see Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then it evolved and it is nowhere near what it was all those years ago. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. So, you know, let's talk about your work, you know, in a male prison, what that was like for you, what are some of the issues you had to deal with, um, you know, and about your sort of your protection and safety as well. Just just kind of a general part about, you know, working with men and their issues. Yeah, well, there's. Men on both sides of the fence line in a prison, there's the male security militaristic hierarchy system where if you throw a female in, they weren't used to that. That's the custody side. And then you have the inmate side patients where all my patients were men. And I will say that the inmates were easier for me to understand and deal with than the people who were technically responsible for my security or telling me what to do. Uh, On one side, the custody side, for the most part, many looked at me as a problem, uh, like, why is this person here? These inmates should have nothing coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like a do-gooder. And the worst thing you can be called in a prison is an inmate lover, you know, i.e. you're kind and compassionate <laughs> to an inmate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So that side was the hardest for me. The inmate side uh, was interesting because depending on personalities, most of the inmates at that time wanted to sweet talk me almost like a child like Mm -hmm. hey mommy you look pretty today can I have the cookie on top of the refrigerator Mm. (laughs) you see and then if they did not get their way then they would have a tantrum like a child like Mm. well I hate you I'm going to sue you give me because you didn't give me what I wanted yeah but but the majority of the inmates realized wow, this is actually a person who cares about us and actually mm-hmm. does no medicine. Well, um, let, me ask, let me ask you something. It's interesting you say that because I had talked to someone recently who had worked in the prison system, um, either as a guard or with, with inmates, whatever it was. And I you know, had mentioned some of this. And what they said to me is that the most vulnerable profession working with inmates is medical and often library or therapy or that kind of thing where the empathy is involved. And that's where Absolutely. it's tricky. Yeah. And, and that is true uh, because if you have the uh, custody mindset, then all what your, your, your top concern is security. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, people in that position, everything that frames their perspective. And their first thought is when someone says something is they're lying, they're scamming. Uh, I don't believe them. Now, in a medical setting, if you have that as your first perspective, which some people do have, then you're going to miss some incredibly bad things that cost people their lives. 
Mm-hmm. And security has it on the other end. If they are not suspicious of everything, then they could experience potential uh, escape or violence. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. have two entirely different lenses looking at an inmate. And, of course, there has to be uh, what I would consider balance and common Mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and and also both sides have to understand, I cannot look at someone who's complaining to me and have your mindset that they're lying. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's not going to work for me as a doctor. I have to first determine are they potentially telling me the truth? Mm-hmm. And of course, I could tell you many stories about how inmates from other prisons in the Nevada were sent to me where they were labeled manipulator or liar. And mm. then I looked at them and go, oh, no, 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 this guy has a horrendous problem or this guy has multiple sclerosis. And that's why some days you see him look better than other days mm. where they would just assume they were scamming. You see what I mean? So yeah, yeah. It's like they're but labeled they are the highest risk. Yeah, because if yeah. you're empathetic, then you're you you're open to vulnerability. Where the right. guards want to be the exact opposite. Exactly. What did your husband think of you working at the prison? Did he get involved? Actually, my husband got very involved <laughs> because I dragged him in, and uh, we're on the radio, so. You'd have to imagine I'm a, I was a tall, blonde female, you know, 30 years old, and I was married to uh, a strong, intelligent, muscular black male. And, you know, my husband passed away two years ago, but in where I worked in Carson City, Nevada, there were no... There was no black population. I mean, none. So I think I brought mm-hmm. the first black person into Carson City, Nevada. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine in a prison setting, which is controlled very much by the good old boy white club, mm-hmm. there were certain people in that hierarchy who thought that was the worst thing possible in the world. You get a female doctor and, oh, my goodness, they're married to a black person. So Mm -hmm. I was literally investigated for uh, supposedly giving preferential treatment to black patients. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Stuff like that happened to me. But the kicker is that I uh, really encouraged my – and you have to understand, my husband was military – he had been involved in the banking world. He was, in, he was educated. He came from an elite family in Chicago. And when I told him, you know, you need to uh, give a talk for Martin Luther King Day in the prison. You should really teach. You should really help form an incarcerated veterans chapter. Initially, he thought I was out of my mind. And... Uh, the first Martin Luther King uh, talk he gave, uh, guys came up to him and said, oh, Mr. Macklin, Mr. Macklin, that's my husband's different name, he, um, please, can you teach in the college program? And they wanted him to teach black history. And my husband uh, always felt that was not the way to teach history because my husband, mm-hmm. believe it or not, actually was very attached to Roman history. But he said, I will teach the ethnic history of the United States because they didn't realize my husband was not only black. He was also Cherokee and Scotch, you know, Scotch. Wow. So, you see, mm. I used to call him a mutt. So you, you were really, Karen, in those days, you were breaking new ground. I mean, you were a female. I was breaking a lot of new right? things. A lot of new things. A lot. A lot. Right? Yeah. And, and married to someone yeah. of a different race. And, I mean, yeah. so it, it really, um, it was really something. Now, there's something that we're going to talk about, and we'll talk about it in the next segment. We have a couple more minutes, but a sneak preview is that you, um, you were assaulted in prison, 
And I'm going to have you talk about that in our next segment. But I think what I'd, what I'd like to ask you um, before we take a break is, you know, now if you look back, you know, that many years later, what's your perspective now? And we'll talk about the incident later, but what's your perspective now? I mean, you could have said, look, I went through an awful situation. I'm done here. This is it. You didn't do that. You said, I went through an awful situation, and I'm going to make a change and make a difference. Talk about that. Okay. Three minutes. <laughs> oh, we, oh, three minutes. I got three minutes to say what? Why? Okay. <laughs> so uh, just for your audience to know that uh, I was assaulted and raped and taken hostage uh, by a particular inmate. And then after 10 hours, got out with the SWAT team concussion grenade. They blew away the inmate in front of me. And then that was on a Friday, the 13th, and I'm back on work on Monday. And now I'm the type of person where, you know, yes, I was in shock, but I also, my identity is not one of being a victim or Mm. staying a, a victim. And I had to make the decision, and I did, that I, it, was, it wasn't going to make me like a shrinking violet or more vulnerable, that it, to me, it was going to make me tougher and smarter. And also, uh, and I knew that I had to forgive not only the inmate, I had to forgive Custody, because there was some concern and legitimate concern on my part that maybe someone or some people in custody wanted me dead mm. uh, or hurt or gone or whatever. And so I had to forgive both sides. And really, it was the inmates who helped me heal uh, by their compassion. I really got really no compassion from the other side that was supposed mm-hmm. to protect me. And then, um, but I think the question is, go ahead. I mean, we're going to talk about this in the next one. We only have a minute. I guess my question is what kept, what made your decision to stay in the system? And, you know, and we'll go back into this more in the next segment, but what was, what was the decision? What was it that made you say, no, I'm going to stay? Yeah, my decision was, if the system can do that to me, allow me to be killed off potentially, mm. I realized what would happen to an inmate on the inside who didn't have someone who was looking out for their welfare. Mm. All right, we're going to take a break on that note. We're talking to Dr. Karen Gedney. It's really just fantastic. I mean, this it's an amazing story. But we're talking to her about her book, which is 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor. And she's going to share with us afterwards what she went through in terms of being raped in prison by an inmate and what that taught her and what she's doing now in terms of really helping with prison reform. Dr. Gedney is an internal medicine specialist. Okay. She was the first woman doctor in Nevada placed in a male medium security prison. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voiceamerica. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. Listen for Bravehearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. 
Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to patricia at patriciaraskin.com. Now, back to The Patricia Raskin Show. Hi, everyone, and we are back. And you are listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. My guest is Dr. Karen Gedney, and her new book is 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor. And she's an internal medicine specialist who in 1987 was the first woman doctor in Nevada placed in a male medium security prison. Against all odds, she stayed for three decades and turned it into her calling. She's recognized as both the medical and correctional fields, and she won Heroes for Humanity Award in Nevada and was noted as one of the best in the business by the American Correctional Association. When she retired from the prison system, she became an activist in a holistic prison reform movement and wrote her book, which I just explained, 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor. And today, she advocates for prison reform and inspires individuals and groups to become involved in reforming the prison system. So welcome back, Dr. Gidney. Welcome back, Karen. Let's talk about what happened to you. I mean, I we're going to go into it just so you can explain. And something I said to you during the break is, you know, what happened to you then, which was, you know, decades ago, probably wouldn't happen now because our security system in the prison is so tight. So explain that and explain what happened. Back, it's 1989. I'm only on the job for two years. And mm. uh, it was October, Friday the 13th. A inmate who had been a Vietnam vet, problems, he comes in. And in those days, this coming into the medical infirmary, inmates were not checked, you know, in terms of padded down or, or anything. This guy brought in with him a sack, and in the sack was a buck knife, not a make-believe knife, a real knife, uh, ropes that he had made out of torn-up T-shirts. Um, he had brought in supplies like a carton of cigarettes, uh, junior mints, antacid, marijuana. I remember everything he brought in. And no one even looked at the bag mm. he brought in. So he, mm. he comes in to my office, which is also not well. It's way down this dark hallway all the way at the mm. end. Of course, that's not security either. And right. he ends up taking me hostage by force and then locking the door from the inside of the room. Mm. And the prison didn't even know if they had a key to my room because it's not oh. technically, you see, I mean, you know, you can't even make this stuff up. Uh, mm. And so now I'm with a guy who took me by force, and his he had already been in prison 14 years. This whole hostage thing was a combination of, one, he wanted to be like suicide by cop, he wanted to die. He had a life without, I mean, a life sentence with no, no possibility of parole. He had already done 14 years. He wanted to be killed on the anniversary of him killing a police officer mm. uh, 14 years ago. And I was, let's say, a high piece on the chessboard, but also he wanted to punish me because... Let's just say he developed a bit of a fatal attraction for me 
Mm-hmm. And uh, in the psychology world, we would call that uh, transference. Mm-hmm. And so since I couldn't respond or wouldn't respond the way he wanted, then I had to be punished. And mm-hmm. uh, I, was, I was raped, um, you know, assaulted. Um, I spent 10 hours in that type of situation and always thinking that I thought the prison system had just left me alone to die. Uh, there was a negotiation going on back and forth initially in the beginning. The negotiator was the sheriff in Carson City, who, by the way, was the childhood friend of the inmate. <laughs> That's another thing you can't make up. And um, and that negotiation went nowhere because uh, he wanted to be killed at midnight. So um, 10 hours into the whole deal, uh, they get a SWAT team from Reno, which is the city next to Carson City. And the SWAT team ultimately got me out with uh, kicking in a side wall, throwing in a concussion grenade, mm. uh, and then them trying to batter down the door and... And the concussion grenade sort of well, concusses you for a few seconds till they had the ability to get in and shoot him a few feet from me. Then they drag me out, and mm. of course I'm just like a, like an adrenaline mess. Mm. I mean I'm just and I can't hear because from that concussion grenade. Um, they. Um, made the attempt to debrief me, which means to ask me a lot of questions and do this mm, and that afterwards. That and I just, I just, I, I, you know, I told them the most minimal things possible. I didn't tell them what happened to me because I was too rattled. And then I go home and then Monday I go back to work. Hmm. And uh, the prison really didn't say anything to me, not the custody hmm. side, not the administration side. But the inmates actually were the ones who were compassionate. Uh, when they saw me, you know, as a doctor, they, were, they wanted to make sure I was okay. They wanted wow. to let them know that there was no way, yeah, they would condone such a thing, that he should have never done that. Uh, there were inmates who wrote things to the newspaper that it should have never happened. You know, I mean, wow. the inmates showed me a lot of compassion. That helped mm. me heal. Uh, the other thing that was a wake-up call for me was two days later, I get a call to my office. It's this older lady who goes, hey, Dr. Gedney, and, I, and she said, I'm Kenny Miller's mother. That's the mother of the inmate who, who took me hostage and died. Mm-hmm. Now, how that phone call got through to the prison is another security weirdness, all right? So... Here I and she says to me, mind you, no, nobody knew what happened to me. She says, uh, Dr. Gedney, I'm so so sorry, and I'm glad nothing happened to you. Mm. And and you know, out of my mouth came, no, nothing except your son um, assaulted and raped me. What did she and say? And this poor old lady just starts crying and sobbing, and I realized that was a wake up call for me, like. Okay, Karen, get a grip. You've been hurt, but how in the world did you get to the point where you hurt a poor mother who just wanted to say they were sorry and hurt? Did she know? Um, did she know her son had died? She she knew her oh, son yeah. was killed. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. Yeah, I mean, it was in the papers, you know. I mean, mm. it was a big deal for for Carson City, Nevada. So she knew, and so here, this poor mother had lost her son. She calls the doctor to say she's sorry. Now, she didn't know he had assaulted and raped me because it's not in the paper because I didn't tell anybody. And then I just smack her with it. And uh, that was my wake-up call that I had to, one, um, forgive so I would not be the type of person who's a victim and then hurt people, hurt other people. You know, that sort of phrase went through my brain. Like, I I don't want to be like that. So it was a combination of the compassion from the inmates and that wake-up call from his mother uh, that, that put me on the path where, one, I realized I had to let it go. But more than anything, I had to do something with it that would make it reasonable for me. And I realized that in the prison, 
they had never had really any talks about what happens in a hostage situation. And, mm. and I started talking about that to the new in, to the new officers coming in because I never wanted them to be in a type of position like that. And also, uh, I wanted to make sure no one would be treated like I had been treated, where nobody knew what to say or do, so they did absolutely nothing, <laughs> you see. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a piece. And, um, I, I, here's my question, Karen. How, after all yeah. that, and you said this before, I asked you this before, I said, how yeah. after going through all that were you able to go back in? And you said... I wanted to help others because I felt if it could happen to me, it could happen, you know, to, to right. a lot of people. Right. Um, of course, yeah. it's a different time today, so it probably wouldn't have happened in today's world. However, because it happened, it's also helped you help so many people in terms of prison reform. Yeah, and you know, like uh, security in in even you know security in my prison now is is much better than it used to be in the old days, but, but prisons themselves, the inmates really outnumber staff, really outnumber mm-hmm. staff. And the thing that happens is when inmates feel like they have no hope, now this guy, he had no hope of ever leaving. Uh, but when you take away hope, and they also if you treat them badly, or abuse them, and there's always a few bad apples in the prison that tend to enjoy doing that, then mm. then you have a dangerous situation. So um, hostages, it's always a possibility just because of the sheer <laughs> numbers where inmates outnumber custody officers mm. a huge amount. You know, Where do you, you think get, it is today? Where do you think, I mean, if you look back... Um, you think it may not have happened in today's world, but where do you see prison reform today? Oh, I what I see is that prisons have been operating on the absolute wrong model, which is shame and punishment and feeling that changes behavior and keeps society safer. And nothing could be further from the truth. Um, mm being and watching it. And I look at it more from a medical model where you prevent people from getting into the type of behavior that puts them at risk for criminality. And that means preventing kids uh, from growing up in violent abuse, physically and sexually abusive environments with Mm -hmm. no one who cares. You know, people can grow up in miserable environments and do all right, but they usually have someone in the mix who cares, whether it's a mentor, a teacher, a coach. And I really think our society has fallen off the grid for that because no one wants to get involved. No one wants to take a chance because of the litigious and because they constantly get pummeled with bad news. I think prevention has to, and it's not only preventing kids from ending up with behavior that puts them at risk. For example, my husband and I mentored children who had a parent in prison because we wanted to make an impact. Uh, Second, you want to also prevent the laws that put people unnecessarily in prison when they should be taken care of, whether it's a drug addiction or a mental illness, which our country is also poor at. And if you have drug addiction and mental illness and you do something wrong, many times you spin off into the criminal justice system. That type of prevention, laws that... um, the classic are the laws related to people on parole, where some states, if you do a parole violation, which can be technical, it's not a crime, it's just a technical violation of parole, they throw them back into prison. That makes mm-hmm. no sense. Mm-hmm. Having no support when they leave makes no sense. So, so do you think that's still happening today, or do you think it's better? I think it's better now only because it's more aware, but it didn't become more aware until 
the mass incarceration got so out of balance with the rest of the world that the rest of the world and the United States started to think, oh, wait a second, how come we have five times more people incarcerated than any other country in the world, and we have some of the most violent drug addict people floating around the United States in mm-hmm. crime is going on? You know, I mean, what are we doing wrong? I think it took, it's like many things, humans are very slow to react. They don't look mm-hmm. ahead. When things get really bad, they're like, oh, maybe we got to do something. Yeah. But that's and what you're so that's just that's that's just been recent. Yeah. Let's say in the last five years that people are really starting to talk about prison reform mm-hmm. again. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Gedney about what she's doing now and what are some of the things that she has been doing to advocate prison reform. What are some of the changes she has seen? Okay, um, Karen Gedney is an internal medicine specialist who in 1987 was the first woman doctor in Nevada placed in a male medium security prison. And against all odds, she stayed for three decades and turned it into a calling. Her new book is called 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor. And when we come back, we'll talk about what she's doing today to help prison reform, what changes, and where's the hope. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice, and we'll be right back. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Tune in every week for Voices for the New Age with Juno Botan and Steve Sokolow. If you're looking for cutting-edge ways to improve your well-being as well as explore personal growth and empowerment, you won't want to miss a single episode of this show. Along with guests from different professions, such as authors, healers, and much more, you'll get an exclusive astrological forecast from Juna and wise leadership tips from Steve. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you looking for a happy lifestyle? Now that's a crazy question, isn't it? Everyone wants to be happy, but we struggle in trying to figure out how to get there. Want help with that? Then tune in to Say Yes, Be Happy with Natalie Botros. Find out about the Bon Vivant Girl lifestyle and learn how to enjoy every aspect of life and be happy. Say yes, be happy. Listen live every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Now, back to The Patricia Raskin Show. Hi, everyone, and we are back. And we're back with Dr. Karen Gedney, who's an internal medicine specialist, who in 1987 was the first woman doctor in Nevada placed in a male 
medium security prison. Against all odds, she stayed three decades and it turned into her calling. She has been recognized as one of the best in the business by the American Correctional Association and won the Heroes for Humanity Award in Nevada. And when she was in prison, she was taken hostage and she was raped and assaulted. And that was many years ago. And she has turned that into a calling. And so welcome back, Dr. Gedney. Well, thank you. Yeah, and let's talk about where you are now. What are the things that you're specifically doing now to help with prison reform? Well, I look at it, and I'll go in three little uh, vignettes. Okay. Uh, number one, I feel that we need prevention for individuals ending up getting involved with the criminal justice system. Number two is if they are in the system then we do everything possible in the system that enables them to leave less of a risk and to society than when they entered. And three, when they leave, that we don't just put them and kick them out of a prison. We have to have the realization that they truly need support to reintegrate. Otherwise, they will bounce back into prison. Right. So... Those are the three basic, that's a holistic view. Now, for the prevention end, uh, I personally feel from my standpoint, uh, what I am promoting, and I do different talks to like community clubs and, and have written some things for the local newspaper, but I really promote mentoring children at risk. And the ones at very high risk are children who have a parent in prison and come from, let's say, a family system where prison is almost considered a rite of passage or something that's not unusual. And uh, and I got involved with the Big Brother, Big Sister organization where they will hook a mentor to a child who needs a big brother or a big sister. And it's usually because either that parent isn't in the mix. And for me, it's uh, a parent who's in prison because I want to show the children a different way. Let me put it that way. So my husband and I mentored kids like that. Mm. And we mentored a total of five. The three oldest are college graduates and the youngest two are still works in progress. Uh, They're still in high school. Now, the other prevention piece is helping uh, push legislation or putting one's weight behind what I do is, um, well, one of the things I did was become very active in end the death penalty in the state of Nevada. I Mm. worked with the coalition on that, worked with the legislation on that, and it passed the assembly. It was AB 395. And then, unfortunately, oh. Governor Sisolak vetoed it. Uh, and what, what, is, what was that? What was, explain exactly what was vetoed? The bill that to... That means, yeah, the, a bill to abolish the death penalty in Nevada. Uh, There's still about uh, 27 states, you know, in the country that uh, still have the death penalty. And I always tell p- people, the more you know about the death penalty, the more understanding you will have why it needs to be abolished. But some people are very attached to revenge and retribution and think it's a deterrent and that Mm -hmm. is not accurate at all. Do you think that Um, will ever get passed? Well, you know, Virginia passed passed to abolish their death penalty and they had some of the highest executions in the country. So the fact that Virginia can do it and then Nevada chose to veto it, uh, demonstrates why Nevada is sometimes called the Mississippi of the West. Mm. Because they have a very, what should I say, uh, a bit of a frontier mentality, like someone does something wrong, let's lynch him or hang him. There's still an undercurrent of that in, in the state of Nevada. But... I do think, I mean, the country is definitely having more pushback. In fact, drug companies are 
want to sue uh, states who use their drugs. In fact, I got contacted by a reporter in South Carolina who said, hey, the drug companies are pushing back, and uh, we know you're against the death penalty. And South Carolina, this is what she told me, is considering maybe going back to the firing squad. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, wow, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's a little wild. But, yeah. uh, but I'm against uh, the death penalty. Now, mm-hmm. that's a prevention piece. On the healing side, on the inside of the prison, I am all about, um, well, one, transparency that uh, it is always bad if, let's say, a closed organization to the public technically monitors itself. That's always dangerous for abuses of power. And I really feel that if you put an inmate in the system, the worst thing possible is to treat everybody the same. I look at it always medical in terms of, okay, what caused this person to have those problems and can we address those problems so they don't end up uh, being a problem inside the prison or when they leave in terms of mental illness or Mm -hmm. medical problems or poor education or poor life skills, addiction, I don't care what it is. It has to have a bit of a personalized approach, not just throw them all in the same box right. and hope for the best. What, right? what, would you, what would you say if, if a parent was listening right now who had a, a, a child you know, who, that they were concerned about? Maybe they're starting yeah. to get into the wrong crowd. What would be right. your advice to parents for prevention? I think the biggest thing for parents is, well, first of all, a parent wants to display the type of behavior they want in a child, which many parents don't. Like they'll drink and then yell at the kid for using pot. You see what I mean? To cope with life. So they have to represent what they really want. But two, they really have to, at the very beginning of their children, be very careful about who they introduce the child to and be involved in who are their friends and their peer groups. And you have to start young. You don't start at like 16 and think you're going to do well. And also, I really think so many kids I see are just, uh, what should I say, not interested in the way the school is set up because the school system in many parts of the country is set up for potentially workers that used to live like 60 years ago where it's regimented and you're taking tests all the time and you're bored out of your mind. And of course, we live in an information age now that any little kid can pick up the phone and Google anything and learn anything from a YouTube thing. That is not the way the world was in the past. Mm -hmm. And the education system is not really up to speed. And I would encourage parents to definitely have the kid involved absolutely in other activities that engage them so they still want to go. Mm -hmm. And that can be everything from music, arts, sports, robotics, whatever. How does does too much social media... Um, play into this problem with the kids? I I think the real problem with social media is that media is geared to push the emotional fear button and, and hook people in to stories like what horrible thing occurs next. So you have kids that feel like, wow, if you listen to what's going on, all what you hear is bad stuff, so sometimes they become hopeless. But the other, I think, very detrimental thing to children is this constantly comparing themselves to each other on Snapchat and all the Instagrams and everything else where everything is filtered and doctored and Things are based on celebrity and 
uh, external things, very much on the outside world versus on the inside world of um, being able to deal with your thoughts and your perceptions. And so many kids are highly, what should I say, suffering from comparitis. You know what I mean? They're comparing themselves to everyone else and feeling bad. And Mm. they also get exposed to behaviors where they want to copy someone who's getting the most hits and the most likes and, uh, and it's, it's on hyperdrive mm-hmm. and they are then disengaging from physical activity, disengaging from nature, disengaging from close contact. And COVID of course has made that even worse for children. Mm-hmm. So um, what would your closing thoughts be? What would you like to leave our listeners with today in terms of prison and prison reform? Okay. I'd like to leave, leave them with, one, uh, becoming more aware of where they, may, if they're interested, do they want to be on the prevention end? Do they want to be on the changing the prison inside itself, which you really need to do in terms of promoting education. For example, I sit on the Nevada Prison Education Project, and wow, trying to coordinate education in a prison. Uh, Most people don't understand that years ago the Pell Grants were taken away. Now they're supposed to start up again. But you want people educated inside of a prison. The other thing is the reintegration, helping ex-felons when they leave. If you have small businesses, giving uh, an ex-felon a potential shot for these second chances. There's tax benefits for businesses. I sit on a nonprofit called the Ridge House, which uh, is a, a nonprofit that helps with uh, some residential housing and and uh, psych and substance abuse help, and then jobs so they can reintegrate them back into society. And there are many different ways where people can be a piece of the solution. And it's, and it's not so much for the, what should I say, the way you want to frame it for me is what is best for society. And what's best for society is that we help people so they don't end up in a prison, and then mm-hmm. end up becoming more of a risk to society. Absolutely. That's how I look uh, at it. Thank you very much, Karen. What would you, how can people find your book? Well, my book is available on Amazon, and I did, and it's on Audible and KDP as well. And my website is discoverdrg.com. Okay. All right. Well, it's it's been really an honor and a pleasure to work with you today and to hear your story and, and commending you for all the work you're doing to make a difference in people's lives. And to remember, it's not just the inmate in the prison, it's the family. You know, you're helping the whole system, you're helping the whole family. So thank you very yeah, and, much. Yeah, and society needs to not be so egocentric about just themselves. I mean, we all live, and it right. makes sense to help each other out. Thank you so much. All right, stay on the line for a minute. All right, everyone, that wraps up this edition of the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. Um, you can write to me, Patricia, at patriciaraskin.com to see all the guests on my on my show, and I will send you my monthly newsletter. It comes out once a month, first day of the month, and you can see who the guests are and other things as well. Also, um, you can like me on Facebook, Patricia Raskin, Raskin Resources. And if you're thinking about doing your own podcast and you want to get your own message out, that's what I do. I help people put together their own podcast. So um, check, check that out as well. All right, everyone. Remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin, and happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of The Patricia Raskin Show. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week.